welcome to the Sports Technology Podcast. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Sean Slauson from the Sports Technology Institute. Sean did her undergraduate and postgraduate work in sports technology, and she tells us a bit about the courses. We also talk about her PhD research, working with British Swimming to bring technology into coaching and improving in the performance. For more information, be sure to check out our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com, and remember to follow us on Twitter at SportsTechPod. Enjoy! The Sports Technology Podcast. This is Henry and uh, Mike. Hi, everyone. And joining us today is Dr. Sean Slauson from the uh, Sports Technology Institute at Loughborough. Welcome, Sean. Hello. Um, Sean's been in the for quite a while at the university for quite a while. So I was wondering if you could start by telling us a bit about your background um, as an undergraduate, postgraduate, and post-postgraduate here at the uh, Sports Tech Institute. <laughs> okay, yes. Yeah, so as Henry says, I've been working, well, Started my undergraduate at Loughborough University in 2003, and I did the Sports Technology BSc course at Loughborough Uni. So that course at the time was about 30 people a year uh, on the cohort, um, and it's a course that kind of combines a bit of engineering, a bit of sports science, a bit of business, and then a bit of specific sports technology, um, marketing and manufacturing, that kind of thing. So. That's where I started, and then I came back and I did my PhD, which was working in the sports technology department, um, and that was with British Swimming in UK Sport, so looking at implementing novel technologies in swimming for elite performance monitoring. And then off the back of that, we secured more funding uh, to continue the work we're doing, the work with British Swimming, um, in, I guess in the drill up the Olympics and a little bit beyond that to leave some legacy technologies that they can improve their feedback. So you, you kind of started with sports technology from quite a, a young age, late teens or so, uh, with, the, with the first undergraduate degree. Had you had any experience of field before? Did you know anything about it? Uh, so when I started Sports technology is quite, was quite a new course. There was probably three courses in the country that were specifically sports technology. So I was torn between doing a product design kind of a degree or doing sports technology. But I did product design type A level at college. I did sports science at college. And where I got to choose my projects, I kind of focused on sport anyway. So I think in my, my second year, my A level year, I did a development of a design for a female football boot and when I did that I got in contact with the guy who at the time was the head of the football division at Umbro so I was just really cheeky and I got his phone number and just rang <laughs> up and went for it and uh, he was quite helpful with sending me samples and uh, how you know sketches of how he designed stuff and that kind of thing so I think that's probably why I wanted to continue with the sport sort of focus and this course seemed to do tick all the boxes and be a little bit less boring than the, the product design engineering degree. <laughs> yeah, very good. It's always fun when you can, you can work on something that you enjoy in yeah. pastimes as well. Um, and so your, uh, your PhD work I think is it's quite cool. So based on um, swimming, elite level swimming for, for British athletes, what was the main question you were, you were hoping to answer with this? When I started the project, we hadn't done any work in swimming at all. And I'm not really a swimmer, but it interested me. So there were grossly it was applying technologies that weren't already applied into the swimming domain with with the aim to give improved feedback. So quantitative feedback to athletes where normally 
swimming is very traditional in the sense that they use cameras most of the time, lots of cameras and lots of stopwatches. So it was kind of a chance to break out of that normal sort of feedback loop and give them additional information. Do you think these sorts of uh, quantitative rather measurements, the like force and, and force curves, force positions and everything, do you think that's something relatively new for sports or is are, are you bringing are you are you able to build off of other sports or is this something that's kind of new in, in sports measurements i think that in swimming swimming is quite a traditional sport in the sense that they are used to top like stopwatches the coaches probably have four stopwatches each and they you know they're all over it and they like to see video, especially the athletes like to see video. And it's amazing what that feedback can do for their performance because you look at the younger athletes and they don't have access to it and they find it much harder to make changes to their technique. But certainly sports like cycling or you know, maybe even rowing and sailing, they have they seem to have already sort of taken up technology as a more day-to-day thing than swimming. Swimming's I would say is behind, but is catching up. Catching up quickly. Um, yeah, I think it. Yeah, it's catching up, and it's it's an attitude thing, and it's the coaches have to see that the data is useful, and you know that's that just comes with lots of contact hours and you know understanding what they want to see. So yeah, it's it's catching up, but I'm sure that all the other sports went through the same process, but possibly a little bit earlier. Not, maybe mm. not all the sports. Do you you think it's the coaches that are kind of behind or is it the athletes? I think that athletes typically will mostly do what their coaches say um, in terms of, you know, facilitating the testing. But the, the athletes tend to be quite interested. So if you can get force graphs up and there's a a squad of them or if you're timing them or whatever they they get quite competitive with one another so they sort of buy into it a little bit I think the coaches their time is stretched massively anyway because you know the swimmers are doing 10 pool sessions a week plus gym sessions which means that the coaching hours they need to see the value in it immediately otherwise they're not going to give the time to learning new technologies so I guess that's possibly part of the barrier where other sports maybe the contact time is a bit lower or something like that I guess. Is there, um, so we're talking about kind of elite level type things but um, there are, I'm just thinking of running, there a whole host of watches and other training aids that you can get. Um, is there scope to use these elite level tech technologies for the recreational swimmer or is it? Yeah I think to, a, to an extent and certainly with some of the wireless sensor stuff we were doing. Um, I mean, that that was basically just to summarise. It was a triaxis accelerometer and some signal processing. So you could automatically know what your lap count and your split times were, your stroke rate. So when your stroke count. So especially for people like triathletes who find it very important to keep a low stroke count but you know long distance per stroke knowing that kind of thing is useful and there are things on the market now that will log that data on a wristwatch type thing so I think that there probably is you know if you could get that wirelessly to monitor the problem with swimming is 
you only get the really good feedback when you're really good because there's not very many people in the squad. Therefore, the coach has time to provide the feedback. Um, whereas even at the university level, they're very, very good swimmers, but there might be I mean, 20 to 40 people in the pool. So if you could implement these technologies to monitor them all and they can use that data like a Garmin or something to mm-hmm. sort of self-analyse, then I think there's definitely scope for it to go you know, down a level to development and, you know, in the public, maybe, yeah, not a wireless solution or possibly a wireless solution, but something that, you know, is a bit like a Nike Plus where you've got it all stored. So, yeah, definitely. Did you have any issues with presenting the data and showing why it's valuable? Like, because your measurement systems are so new, coaches weren't really looking at that particular aspect or statistic of whether it's force or, or whatever you're measuring like, did you have to do some convincing and and show them that, okay, actually, if you get some more force at this particular moment, you'll be more efficient down the road and your times will be quicker than what they normally would be otherwise? I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers to actually working with the coaches and athletes is they need to have that understanding. And, you know, we're, we're breaking it down, you know, and we're getting there now, but it's, I've been working with, British swimming for five years now and it's starting to be a place where you know they are getting interested but definitely that's almost because the thing is this is there's only a couple of institutions in the world that are able to measure these things which means that the knowledge and the understanding of it is relatively new especially after they change the block you know it's added a new dimension so and obviously the research groups who are doing it, like the Australian Institute of Sport, for example, they're not going to publish everything on their athletes. <laughs> so it's, yeah, learning what is the important indicator for an athlete and how to feed that back to the coach so they value it is, is probably the most difficult thing. Um, and, yeah, we're, we're getting that with that. It's... It's been a long, it's a long road and, it, you know, we've built quite a good relationship up now. But that's definitely, you know, they have to understand why it's going to benefit their performance. Otherwise, they don't have time to do it because it's the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a, a question I have. So your work has been sponsored by the British Swimming and then there's the Australian group. And what you're developing isn't, isn't necessarily equipment for race day, but more training aids and, and like looking at technique and things. So there's potentially a lot of material that could be used by other people, people that aren't British, I guess, in, in the Olympics. So is there, is that sort of, is your work guarded in that respect, or is it kept uh, kept only for for the the sponsors? Or um, I think that in so when we're looking, we do a lot of work where we we're taking case study data for a particular athlete. And we look at how they're progressing. And so none of that at this stage will be published because it's, I mean, I guess from an academic point of view, case studies are maybe not as relevant anyway, but it's, yeah, that we're not, we're not publishing that kind of thing. At the same time, there's quite an open, about half of British and Australians, they've come from the Australian Institute of Sports, there's quite an open communication channel between the British guys in Australia, which helps because, you know, if they've got something and we've got something, then it's probably better to push everything forward. But, 
yeah, I mean, to an extent, it is slightly guarded, but I think that, you know... Hold your cards close. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, it strategically makes sense for, for what they're doing. So we, we wouldn't put anything too, too obvious out there. Yeah, of course. Are there uh, any changes that we'll be seeing soon in, uh, in the Olympics or anything? Will any of this, any of your work kind of be coming out or um, in, in technique or, or? I don't, I mean, this is the first Olympics where they're using the block that has the footrest on the back. So the OSB 11 in Beijing, they used the new, so basically the old block was just a standard block and it was a five degree angle. Um, and then Omega brought out the OSB 11, which is actually a 10 degree angle, so slightly steeper and has a footrest component, which is at 30 degrees, so 40 degrees total. Um, so it's kind of like a kick, kick plate that you would have in a sprint start block. Like that's the idea. And Omega claim that it's going to improve starting times. And so this is something that they implement as well to, as part of their timing system? Or? Um, no. So it, it has a contact in it for the mm -hmm. timing to make sure that they've got their start time. Well, actually, no. In fact, they probably don't because the start goes off the gun. Okay. So I think it will be the gun time. But I think there is some sort of contact in that for relays. Okay. Um, to make sure that the walls touch before they leave. Um, change in their sort of kinematic position should improve their start times because they should be able to propulse themselves into the pool further or quicker. Um, and so they, I think they use, they use it in the Commonwealth Games. It's the first Olympics is using the, the full RSV 11 block, so that will be, it might have an effect on. Do they have uh, similar regulations for starts in athletics and swimming? Like, can they do false starts or can they not do false starts? No. So in swimming, once they take paper marks, if you so much as move at all, you're disqualified. Before oh. <laughs> the gun, so there's no no false starts. You it, you just you're disqualified. You okay. move, so you don't want to move. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, so if, like, if, they, if they launch off within whatever it is, a hundredth of a second before the gun or after the gun, then... That's it, yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm not even, not totally sure how they do it, whether it's a sensor or whether it's just... I think it's people. I think it's done by human judgment. That's the places that you can get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a thin line to walk though with the disqualification. Yeah, well, we were doing some. I was down at the uh, training camp in London, so they had a, um, a training camp for the 38 guys who were followed by the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And we were down in London at the London Pool um, probably about four weeks ago, and they did some testing. We were doing some testing there, and start. Some of the guys that time between them and such was it's obviously video resolution, but it's not normal. So I think they're probably a little bit deeper on those. Pushing it a bit, yeah. yeah just a little bit. For the, the relays, they, they touch the wall, which is a timing pad as well, and then they yeah. jump yeah. up and over. Yeah. Very good. Are there, is there any um, possibility of using this 
outside of like the training scenario, so like the viewers at home having this data on the screen or something? I, I know it's really new, but do you kind of see that having any potential for kind of a media application down the road, or is it just just too technical and not wouldn't be as much used for entertainment? Possibly. Uh, possibly having a wearable, really small sensor might be more interesting. I mean, the force of the blocks, you could certainly get an almost um, traffic-like indication of who was good and who was bad in terms of peak forces or something. But maybe a wireless sensor where you're getting their stroke counts and their stroke rates, because the stroke rates of the elite guys are just mind-blowing so you know that kind of thing might be quite interesting interesting to a budding recreational or weekend warrior kind of affair and so yeah, i think down the line if you can make stuff you know small enough and that kind of thing it might be quite interesting and i guess you know you've got big force versus small force that could be <laughs> i guess later later this sort of technology gets implemented in a recreational sense. It'd be cool to have the numbers for yourself and the numbers for the elites to, to kind of yeah. compare them, like for like. Compare yourself. Possibly also the sort of reaction time of the athletes and you know their contact time on the on the blocks, like how quick have they left and that kind of thing, might be sort of interesting. But yeah, a little benchmarking process, like knowing how many watts have all output compared to us on the bike. Yeah, maybe. But um, have you have you in your case studies or, or bigger studies been able to identify uh, like how much of an how much of a benefit you're getting from, from different coaching methods or from different from different knowledge? Um, I think I think it possibly depends on the swimmer and yeah we haven't we haven't quantified things but for example we've done some work with um, a Finally, a student who is a, a university swimmer who, let's say, has a, an outside chance of making the Olympic qualification time. That's but it's cool. a pretty outside chance. <laughs> he likes to think he'll get in. But um, we've been working with him on his starts and looking at his force production. And we did exactly what you were saying. We compared him to one of the guys who is a funded elite athlete who is more sort of expected to qualify, mm -hmm. um, who has quicker PBs and is a sprinter, so doing similar events. And we did exactly that. We looked at what what are the differences in what he does on the block and what our swimmer does on the block. And we looked at the video analysis and we've, we have changed his technique from basically, he looked pretty good, he was quite consistent until you looked at his forces and realised that he just dived really quickly and really powerfully straight into the water and didn't get any horizontal distance, which mm. means they can travel faster through air than water. So as long as they can hold their body line and you know, not make too big a splash, the further the better. And you can see the difference between him and this other, other you know, elite athlete. And so I think we can't, the number we're looking at is around a half second improvement in his That's start his start time, which is to 15 meters. But for a sprinter, if you can make those improvements, then that's yeah, pretty good. So he's he's improving. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether he'll qualify, <laughs> but yeah, that's that's an example of 
a sort of case study that we looked at and you could certainly see what was happening when you looked in the video and looked in the force and it Mm -hmm. made sense. Do you guys have like permanent installations at like the UK training sites or do you, are these purposely made kind of portable so you can bring these to different, if they're training in Spain or Italy or wherever they may be, do you have one set up like that's always available to, to the athletes? Yeah, so part of the the British swimming structure in the UK is they have five what they call ITCs, which are intensive training centres, which are the hubs for their elite athletes. Now, there are athletes who train outside of those places, but they're the hubs, and Loughborough is the main one. Um, but all of those pools are public pools or available to universities, which means that part of the remit is that they're not permanent fixtures and we can, they are portable. So we go testing with the kit. It's, it's fairly portable. You put it in a van um, around the country to different places. So we've been up to Stirling, um, to Stockport, to Bath and to Swansea. And we did take it out to one of their training camps in Mallorca as well. And obviously to London for the London camp. So it has to be portable and it has to fit on all the different pool sides, which they seem to, there's no standard. They're all different Mm. pole sizes and that kind of thing. So uh, unlike the Australian Institute of Sport, where they have a facility that is there, which has probably, you know, 50 cameras set up permanently and, you know, that kind of, as is a slightly different approach and it has to be portable that's part of what what we do so we can go and see different athletes in different places to make it more accessible i guess great well um are there any uh websites or or twitter feeds or or other things that you'd like to to mention to refer our listeners to if they have uh... i guess really just the the sports tech elbra Twitter feed, so... Yeah, it's the official Twitter feed of the Institute. It is, and I'm in control of that, so look on there for updates, and then there's... So we have, yeah, Sports Tech LinkedIn. Yeah, Yeah. and... BritishSwimming.co.uk, or...? Oh, I think it's BritishSwimming.org, I think. Um, But, yeah, just... All right. Well, great. Thanks a lot, Sean, for your time. And that is the episode. Thank you, Sean, and thanks, listeners, for listening. Sorry about the spotty audio quality on this one. We weren't all on the same continent for this recording. I hope you were still able to understand what we said. For more information, you can check out our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com, and remember to follow us on Twitter at SportsTechPod. Thanks. Bye.